Shabbat Shalom and welcome to the Mussan household. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. As I light our Shabbat candles to set apart this special gift for our family, may it remind us all of the light of Messiah that shines in us and in our home. As I cover my eyes, may we be reminded that before Messiah opens our eyes, we cannot see the glories and the joy of all on which his light sheds understanding. With my hands, I spread the light of the candles throughout our home to express my desire as a wife and mother that the light of Messiah and the joy of his Shabbat rest be spread throughout our home. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Malech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav, Vitzivanu Lehiot or Legoyim Vanatan Lanu, Et Yeshua Meshikenu or HaOlam. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now for the Kiddush. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now, for the blessing over the bread. Amotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to Yah for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Amotzi lechem min haaretz, Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. And now, the blessing for the wife. Adonai, my Elohim, thank you for the incredibly wonderful wife that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May she be, as it says in your word, a woman of valor, more precious than jewels, in whom my heart may trust and my fortune is found. Amen. And the blessing for the husband. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the husband that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May he be, as it says in your word, a man whose delight is in your Torah. May he be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Amen. Blessing for the children. Behold! Children are a gift of Adonai. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessing for the sons. Yisimcha Elohim ke'Ephraim v'ki Manasseh. May Elohim make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the sons that you have given me. May they be, as it says in your word, men whose delight is in your holy Torah, gracious, compassionate, and righteous, fearing no evil, but with a steadfast heart to 
trusting in you. Amen. And the blessing for our daughters. Adonai, our Elohim, we thank you for the daughters that you have blessed us with. May they be, as it says in your word, women of valor, more precious than jewels, arrayed in strength and majesty, and whose mouths open with wisdom so that the teaching of kindness may be upon their tongues. Amen. Shabbat shalom, Shabbat shalom, Shabbat shalom. May the peace of Adonai be with you always. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Adonai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach leolam vayed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha, Nedar Bakodesh. Noratehilot. Oh, save oh, save Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. La'asot et ha-Shabbat la-doratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshashet yamin asa Aronai et hashmayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat va'yenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Ve'chol levavcha, uv'chol nafshecha, uv'chol meyodecha. Ve'hayu ha'devarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Ve'shinantam levanecha, ve'libartabam, ve'shivtecha, ve'beftecha, uv'lechtecha, ve'derech, uv'shuch becha, uv'kumicha. Uksartam leot al yedecha, v'hayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. I cast my mind to Calvary Where Yeshua bled and died for me I see His wounds, His hands, His feet Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance by heavy
Judah, welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast. Uh, as we begin this Sabbath, uh, let me just remind everyone that we come into your home on Friday evenings in our Arab Shabbat, the evening of Sabbath broadcast, to encourage you. There's a lot of brethren who do not have a local congregation they can be a part of, and so they look forward to being part of our Sabbath service. Uh, and uh, we welcome you. We're glad to have you. We're here to encourage you as best we possibly can uh, with the public reading, with the Torah portions and the Haftorah portions. This year we're uh, emphasizing the Haftorah teachings to tie into the Torah portions, but uh, the only way I can properly introduce the Haftorah portion to you is to remind you a little bit about the Torah portion. This particular Sabbath is the Sabbath of Vayashev. We're in the book of Genesis in chapter 37, 
And we're now into the story of Joseph. You know, we've gone through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob going and working with Laban, him getting married, having his sons. They come back into the land, and now the story begins to focus in on one of Jacob's sons, Joseph in particular, whom he favored. And part of the reason he favored, because Rachel had given birth to Joseph, and Rachel, as you know, was uh, the beloved of Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel. And so he gave favor uh, to Joseph. And in fact, he made him a multicolored tunic uh, that he would wear, which was sending the signal to all the other brothers that Jacob was probably going to hand the inheritance to him, and he was going to hand his best blessing. Now, Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, so he qualifies for that, and his father is sending the signal that that is what's going to happen. Well, there's resentment, as you know, that comes between Joseph and his brothers, and this Torah portion uh, talks about how Joseph had a couple of dreams. And in these dreams, uh, he specifically sees himself in a position where his brothers bow down to him, including his father and his mothers. And uh, as soon as he shares that, and given the tension that exists within the family, and the favor that his father had already shown to him, the brothers very much resent him, and in fact dislike him intensely. You know, who does this guy think he is? And he's one of the younger brothers. So you, you can imagine a group of older brothers looking at a younger brother and saying, who the heck do you think you are? In fact, they were making the statement, you think you're going to rule over us? You know, which didn't, couldn't, couldn't possibly happen in their minds and in their thinking. And for him to even suggest it by saying, hey, I had this dream, and everybody's understanding the dream is saying that, um, it, it's great conflict. Well, as the Torah portion goes on, uh, it comes to a day when um, J Joseph and Benjamin, his younger brother, are there with his father Jacob, but the other brothers are out tending the flock. And they've gone to a place called Shechem, which we all know we've heard that before, and uh, the flock is supposed to be there. And at that point, Jacob, the father, says, hey, I want to send Joseph to see to the welfare of the brethren and the flock. So he dispatches Joseph to go up and check on him. Well, that's the one thing they didn't like about Joseph, is Joseph checking on them, uh, because that's where the tension had come up in the past. And uh, so when he goes up, it turns out the brothers had moved the flock. Now, we don't know exactly why, but maybe they thought there would be a better pastures for the sheep over in a place called Dothan. And there is a plain and a great pasture area over there. Uh, but there's also these pits. Uh, these pits that are like natural water cisterns. So it's a great place to pasture because you, you have these cisterns that will have water in them, these holes in the ground. And then you have, these, uh, you have this pasture land that the uh, flock can graze on. And so they had moved the flock over there. Well, when uh, Joseph got up to Shechem, 
he can't find the brothers. He can't, can't find the flock. And the scripture intriguingly says to us that there was a certain man there, and that that man goes to Joseph and specifically says, oh, I heard your brothers say they were going to go to Dothan. And on that word, Joseph then turns and goes to Dothan. And the, the, the way the scripture presents this, we actually think this is a remez level, a hint level about the Messiah. And we think that was possibly the Messiah <laughs> sending Joseph over to where he needed to go to carry out what was going on. Because the fact is that in this Torah portion is what we as Torah teachers refer to as the beginning of the story of redemption. The idea that the Father would send the Son to see to the welfare of the brethren and the flock, that is what God's redemption is about. We need someone to come and to help us. The Father sends the Son to come help us to redeem us. So the person sent is called the Redeemer. And we see the story of redemption taking shape here. Now obviously this ties directly into us in our messianic faith because we see our Heavenly Father who has sent His Son to see for our benefit, our welfare, and so forth, not the least of which is John 3.16. We believe the Father has sent the Son. And so this is the great story of redemption for it. Now, if you recall, um, when the brethren saw Joseph, when he actually hooked up with them in Dothan, they were very critical of him. And in fact, some of them even suggested, let's kill him. Um, and some of them said, no, 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 let's not kill him, we'll sell him. And so they threw him in one of these pits. And they ended up pulling him out of the pit and selling him into slavery where he goes down to Egypt. Now, that's your basic story that we have in the Torah portion for it, a tremendous story to be told. So let me take you to the Haftor portion that ties into this, and it has some rather interesting statements from the prophet that ties directly into our Torah portion. And our Haftor portion comes from the book of Amos, and it's chapter 2, and it begins at verse 6. So let me read for you a bit, remembering kind of what the Torah portion is about. Let me read to you from Amos chapter 2, beginning of verse 6, for it says this, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless, and also turn aside the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. And on garments taken as pledges they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, the reason why, as we begin in this portion in Amos, that it ties so quickly back to the ancient story is the expression that the righteous are sold for money. And that's what happened to Joseph. Joseph was sold for some money. And oh, by the way, the amount of money they were sold for was the equivalent 
of the ten brothers that sold him to buy a pair of sandals for each one of them. And that's what this verse says, and the needy for a pair of sandals. So this, this little statement that's being made by the prophet Amos is tying directly back to this Torah portion, is tying back to the story of Joseph being re rejected by his brethren. He's the righteous one, and him being sold for money, and that the value is only for a pair of sandals, you know, to each of them. That that's all they value their brother uh, to be. He goes on to describe other things, Amos describes other things that Israel is doing uh, that they should not be doing. Let me read it a little bit further. Um, he says, yet, verse 9, yet was I, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. Let me remind everybody, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, in part of their journeyings, the last part of their journeyings, before they actually went into the Promised Land, they battled the Amorites. And there was a great battle, and Israel completely wiped the Amorites out. And apparently this was God's plan. God said to Abraham when he was giving him the prophecy in Genesis 15 that his descendants would go in into a strange land, namely Egypt, and that they, God would bring them up out of that land and they would plunder that land. And we know that the children of Israel plundered Egypt when they left. That he would bring them out and that he would keep them in that land for a certain number of generations. And here's the rationale. God said, because the sin of the Amorite is not yet full. And so it's clear that God purposed the timing of when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt for the purpose of that forming an army that would go and eliminate the Amorites. Now the Amorites, as best we can understand, was a very, very powerful people and force there in the land of Canaan. Very powerful. And uh, other nations had to deal with them. But when Israel ran into them, along with the Lord, they eliminated them. And the way the prophet describes it here is, is his, um, I took the height away and I took the roots away. I even destroyed the fruit from above and its root below. Meaning, the entire harvest was lost that they had and they have no ability to produce another harvest. We don't have an Amorite people walking around in the world anymore. There is no Amorite nation anymore. The Amorites, when Israel got done with them and what the Lord did through Israel to them, they did not exist ever again. They were eliminated. In fact, there's some Bible scholars, archaeologists that were laying claim to that some of these nations that Israel was dealing with when Israel became a nation and went into the Promised Land, they've argued, well, there's no evidence that they ever existed. For example, they argued that the Hittites uh, were never around. The Amorites were never around. They have found archaeological evidence on all of them in ruins. And as the Bible said, would be done to those peoples. 
they have found the evidence of their destruction. So they did exist, and so the biblical record is correct and accurate in what it's describing. Now the prophet is bringing that subject up because for him, this is in the past tense. God already did this. And it's supposed to be a lesson to us that this is how God deals with his enemies. Now, he's hinting at that Israel is behaving more like an enemy with the God of Israel than as the servants of the God of Israel. He goes on to say this, verse 11, Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets, and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is that not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. He's asking the question, didn't I do that? Well, the obvious answer is yes, he did. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Now, in the case of the Nazarite, the Nazarite uh, vow for it, they are forbidden from enjoying or having any part of the pleasure of the grape. They can't touch it. They can't have the skin of the grape. They can't have the juice of the grape, wine that's made from grapes. They can't have it. They can have nothing to do with the grape. Uh, I'm not real sure that I know fully why that is, other than this one item, that wine and the grape is one of the most powerful symbols in the Scripture for what we call joy. When we have the Feast of the Lord, we have a cup of wine. And the season of joy, we enjoy the wine. In fact, Proverbs says uh, uh, that wine is a joy to a man's heart. And so apparently the Nazarite vow, you're to walk away from your personal pleasure to fulfill and keep this vow. So if you abuse the vow and you break uh, the Nazarite uh, code, if you eat of a grape, if you drink the wine juice or the juice of the grape. And here Amos is saying to Israel, I raised up Nazarites in there, and guess what you did? You had them drink wine. You had them break their vow, you know, for it. That's a pretty serious matter. God takes vows very seriously, and a Nazarite vow is a very powerful and important element uh, of one's faith and, and character if you take it on. Then he said to the prophets, uh, the people said, the prophet, don't prophesy. Um, this one really concerns me. Now, I understand that in the history of Israel, all the prophets that came forward, many times the children of Israel, the, the leadership and so forth, didn't want to hear what the prophet had to say. The prophet usually would come with, you've got a serious problem here, and I think Amos here is the one who refers to the women as a bunch of cows, you know, that's kind of offensive. Um, and they rejected what they had to say. And they don't want to hear it. And so because they don't like what the message is, they reject and they say, we don't want to hear from the prophet, you know, get rid of him. Uh, and as is the history of Israel, in many cases, they killed the prophets. Today is some of the most exciting times to live in when it comes to Bible prophecy. And we have a lot of believers that don't want anything to do with it at all. To this day, they are standing up and saying, Amos, 
don't prophesy to me. I don't want to hear what you have to say. John, you wrote the book of Revelation. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear what you had to say. Even though it might be about me and in the days that I live, I don't want to hear it. Don't talk to me. And others who bring the message from those prophets, the ones who share the word with it, they don't want to hear those people either, even though they're their own brethren. They don't want to hear that. In Israel's historical past, this Haftor portion parallels what the brothers did to Joseph. Joseph shared a dream. This is something going to happen in the future. They don't want to hear it. They're rejecting it. In fact, they're going beyond rejecting it, actually to do harm to the dreamer and to the messenger. As Israel has killed the prophets of the past, we have the exact same behavior happening today. Let me say this cleanly and as distinctly as I can. If you're a brother in the faith, and you're active in your congregation, and someone comes in and begins to share with you any part of the prophetic scenario, any part of the prophecies that are given, both Old and New Testament, by the Messiah and other prophets, by the apostles, any of that material, and you reject it. I don't want to hear it. You ignore it to the point where you want that person who brought the information. I don't want to deal with them anymore. Get them out of here. I'm separating myself from them. You're no different than one of Joseph's brethren who said, you know what, let's just throw him in the pit and sell him. There's not a spit of difference between you and them when it comes to spiritual things. Now, we look back on the past, we know what God did with the brethren. We know Joseph came out of that pit. And yeah, he got sold into slavery and he went down there, but God made his way prosperous. God used him in a powerful way, exactly as his father Jacob had purposed to see to the welfare of the brethren and the flock, and as Joseph said later, when they finally realize who he is, God sent me beforehand to be a blessing to you and to preserve you. Well, brethren, I have news for you when it comes to the end time prophetic scenario. All of those words are for your benefit, my benefit, so that we might be preserved in those days. If we reject that, the message and the messenger, if we ignore it, if we discard it, and we say, I don't want to hear the prophet anymore, then you will suffer consequences. You will not receive the benefit of God finding a way to preserve you and to protect you. Let me go on further here. Uh, verse 13, Behold, I am weighed down beneath you, as a wagon is weighed down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish with the swift, 
and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground, the swift of the foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day. Wow, what an interesting comparison and statement this is. Most people, when they, shall we say, get up the courage to resist something in the Scriptures, whether it be a doctrinal issue or whether it be a prophetic message from the Scripture, I can think of the case that where the guy who stands up and says, no, we don't have to follow the commandments of the Torah. No, we don't have to obey all that stuff that Moses laid out. And they, they, they claim to be a believer of Yeshua, and they boldly say these things and assert this as their position. And oh, by the way, there's a lot of believers who do this. He says that they say that because they think, and their personal confidence on that position is, they think they're the swift. They think they're faster than the competition. They think they're smarter. They think that they're more capable than the person who's advocating the other. And they believe that they're going to prevail. In the end, they will prevail. They have no doubt whatsoever about this. However, this is what God says about those who resist Him. Um, you're going to find out that your swiftness is not fast enough. You're going to find out that your courage wasn't enough. You're going to find out your strength wasn't enough. You will not prevail. And it's going to come as a shock to them. And the same thing is true of when the brothers rejected Joseph and the shock they went through when suddenly, later in the, the uh, Torah story, he's having lunch with them. Um, and um, after Benjamin has, quote, been caught with his goblet, with his cup, and they're all in deep, deep trouble... In fact, this is what next week's Torah portion is. And they are going to be in shock when all of a sudden Joseph stands up and says, I'm Joseph, your brothers, your brethren. And you know, and it says they were speechless. This is the guy they wanted to kill, their own brother. This is the guy they lied to their father about. This is the guy who they didn't even care for him. They had rejected him. They, they thought he was phony. They thought he was false. They thought he was full of himself and so forth. And they, they had made a summary judgment with regard to him. And all of a sudden, it turns out what he said is true. And they didn't think there was any possible way that could happen. But it did happen. That's what Amos is trying to bring out, you know, in this passage. That's what he's trying to echo from the Torah portion about that whole dynamic of the rejecting of the brethren and the things that God is doing. Now let me summarize here for you a little bit and see if we can draw application for us today. I sincerely believe that every one of us 
uh, that are walking in the faith together. That are, God knows every one of you personally. And God, quote, has a plan for your life. He, he knows how you fit in His kingdom, and He wants you to be a part of the kingdom, and He wants to bless you, and He wants to see to your good, and, and things like that. And we, we, we basically say, yeah, we agree with that, yeah, we're, and so forth. But every once in a while, the Lord will bring something toward us, and we start rejecting it. We need to stop doing that. We need to learn the lesson of Israel. We need to learn the lesson of Joseph's brothers. To stop doing that. One of the uh, uh, good verses that I find in Corinthians where Paul taught, I think, on a part of this, he said, despise not a prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully. If you hear something, something is put forward, that your first reaction to is, boy, I'm, I'm not sure that's right. Rather than reacting in a negative manner, you don't look down on it. You say, well, let's examine that. And you go and you check it. Now, when you see that it doesn't line up with the truth, well, then you can then make your statement, your conclusion, by saying that I don't think is correct, and here's the reasons why. However, if you don't go do the examination and you just direct, reject it out of hand, this thing could turn out to be the truth and you will find yourself in big trouble. You messed this up. In recent days in this country, we have seen incidents between police officers and individuals in a lot of cases, minorities were involved, in which that the police took an action that either brought about the injury or the death of these different folks. And when we first heard the report, and quite honestly, there was only a piece of the report that was really shared, just a little piece, it was immediately broadcast to everyone, oh, this is the police officer who did this wrong thing. I mean, they say it right up front. You know, uh, this, this man was shot by the police, um, and he was in a struggle, and he shot the man. And so they say, okay, the, the police officer is wrong here. He shouldn't have done it that way. Uh, got entangled with him and so forth. He didn't have the right to do that. And it's the police officer's fault when the man was resisting arrest and was a known criminal and threatened the police officer. And other witnesses saw that he threatened the police officer. The police officer is still wrong when he defended himself and shot him. We, we've gotten to the point where we hear something which has some truth, so, and we reject it immediately. Well, in this country, we have due process. If someone's accused of doing something wrong, you, you have to consider them innocent until proven guilty. Now you come bring it in, you investigate, you get all the facts, then you make an informed judgment based on the facts and the evidence. That's how you make a good decision. That's what the Torah teaches. That's what God has taught. But when you have a people that don't do that, whether it be us or our nation, we're going to suffer the consequences. The whole world thinks this guy that's on trial is guilty. 
What if the jury comes back and says, no, he's not guilty? Then what are we going to do? Because we're already out in the open. We've already said, hey, he's guilty. Let's, let's burn him at the stake. Let's stone him. What are we going to do then? Well, it shows us that we're not a people following the truth or the Torah and the instructions of the Lord. Let us not be that kind of people that make that kind of mistake about any of our brethren or any of the activities of our life. I think that's the lesson for us that comes from the Haftor portion tied into the story of Joseph. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Hold your finger there at the end of chapter 3, where we will begin our instruction for the Brit Hadashah portion, and let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for all the teaching and instruction that you give to us through your word and your instruction. And Father, as we uh, go into the uh, story of talking about the patriarch Joseph, Father, I pray that we are encouraged and strengthened in our most holy faith uh, in, the, in Messiah Yeshua. Father, be with us as we go and teach the word on this week. And we love you and bless you and thank you in all of these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. So our Torah portion is Vayeshev, where we are now introduced to the story of Joseph, the, uh, one of the youngest sons of Jacob. We know Jacob had 12 sons, and he had come back into the land after spending uh, many years, 20 years, with his uncle Laban. And he comes and settles into the land, and his children start to grow into manhood. And in Genesis chapter 37 is when we start to go into the story of Joseph. Now, as we begin the story of Joseph, any time that you've either heard me teach the Torah or any other Torah teacher, Messianic teacher, talking about Joseph, there is an uncanny parallel between the life of Joseph and the life of Yeshua the Messiah. There is any teaching that we do on Joseph, if we're studying the Torah, we have to, we cannot help but point to Yeshua the Messiah as far as when we start talking about the themes of what Joseph experienced in his life such as, to mention a few, being hated by his brethren, being sold by his brethren, being falsely accused, being thrown into prison. And then as we continue on for the next couple of weeks, we will go into the whole concept and the whole story about how Yeshua, when he was risen up, he was put and he stood at the right hand of, the, of God and that he has been ascended to the throne of heaven and then we have the life of Joseph going from the lowest of low in the land of Egypt as a slave, as a prisoner, and being elevated all the way to being the viceroy of Egypt. As I start to describe some of these things, you can start to see some of the broad parallels between Yeshua and Joseph. This is the first thing I want to start with as we go into the New Testament readings, and we look and we teach some of the same principles of the Torah portion from the New Testament. So if you would, begin at Matthew chapter 3, and this is when Yeshua, after being uh, baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice from heaven comes, the Spirit of God comes and speaks of Yeshua. And we're at the very end of chapter 3 of Matthew, we have the amazing words of this voice coming from heaven. And when it comes and it says this, and it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is very obvious that we see in the life of Yeshua that He is the Son of God and that He is loved by His Father, our Heavenly Father. 
This connects, of course, directly to the testimony originally spoken of by of Joseph, where that he was loved by his father, Jacob, more so than all of his other brothers. We know the story, of course, that Joseph went and he spoke an a ill report of his brothers. So it doesn't say that it was untrue. He spoke that his brothers were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. He came and reported it to his father. This grieved his father and reprimanded his brothers. And then he was elevated in status by the giving of a coat or a tunic of many colors. When it comes to in ancient practice, and this is the case even with today, what you wear is absolutely a symbol of one's status, what you are clothed in, how you dress, how you carry yourself. And we see in the life of Joseph, he was given this coat. Look, back in those times, nobody wore robes of multiple colors or bright colors or anything like that, unless you were royalty, unless you were clearly someone of status that did you ever wear anything like that. Well, that's exactly what happened when, Joseph, when Jacob put that tunic upon Joseph. He is giving him authority over his brothers in status, in, in just the way you look at the guy and say, that looks like the guy that's in charge based on the way he looks. And he loved his son, Jacob did. God himself loves his son, Yeshua, loves our Savior, the Messiah, and he came. And he says this in the New Testament, speaking of how he has, that he is loved by his father. We also know that all authority, this is obviously after the testimony of the Messiah, and before he ascended, he spoke and he said, all authority has been given to Yeshua over heaven and earth. This ties, of course, to the dreams that Joseph had, that Joseph had these dreams and he told his brothers. Now, we always talk about how he probably shouldn't have told his brothers those dreams because it made them hate him even more. But he had that dream. Remember that dream where the sun, the moon, the stars all bowed to him and that this was interpreted even by his father, Jacob, that he would also bow to his son and that his mothers would bow to his son, to, 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 to Joseph? Well, this is exactly why Yeshua, when we talk about, a lot of people want to debate what's the, the, the comparison of the deity of Yeshua and what authority does he have, and he speaks of his father being greater than he, but he also says his father and he are one. And so all, I don't ever want to get into the idea and concept that we define that Yeshua is somehow less than God. He, we, we take what he said when he said that his father was greater than he. I take that for what it says. However, I don't question the power and the deity of Yeshua because it says after he was resurrected, it says all authority of heaven and earth has been given to him. He has all authority. And it's in the same way that, that Jacob bowed to his son, who was the viceroy of Egypt, basically the ruler of the world at the time. I'm getting ahead of myself in the story of Joseph, of course. But this is the connection of then, that's the fulfillment of the dream that Joseph had in the same way that all authority over heaven and earth has been given to Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, when we're talking about him, and then we, we have the story in our Torah portion, of course, about how Joseph was sent by his father sent by his father to go and find his brothers. They said they were tending his flocks in Shechem, and he says, I will send you to go, go and see about the welfare of the flock and the welfare of your brothers. We can see the direct parallel to the Messiah himself being sent by God to this earth 
in all the testimony, when it's talking about to, to, the, to Mary and to all the instruction of what, that, that when, this, when He came, when the Messiah came, when, this, when He came, He was sent by God. And what, of course, did He do? He came and He's seen what's going on here on earth. He came to teach us, teach us His Word, teach us His instruction. He was sent to be the King of Israel, the King in Jerusalem, and that this was all prophecy of what the Messiah was going to do, and that He was sent by His Father. Now, the Messiah comes, and He sees about the welfare of the brethren. What Yeshua found on earth was, unfortunately, not that great. Many people that did not believe, many people that, that, that doubted the Messiah, that didn't follow Him. Now, He found many followers as well. He found many people that, that believed in Him, that followed Him. Twelve disciples came to learn from Him. And so He came to see about the welfare of the creation when the Messiah was sent to this earth. In the same way, Joseph was sent to see about the welfare of the flocks of Jacob. Jacob, the flocks that he accumulated from his uncle Laban, this was his property, this was his livelihood and his life that he had acquired. In the same way, the Messiah was sent to see about the creation that God had made. Now, when he came, though, of course, we have all the testimony of Yeshua and what he did. When it came down to it toward the end of his life, and this is what we actually see in the story of Joseph, is we see many of the parallels of Joseph's life that are recorded in Scripture tie more to the end of the Messiah's life than perhaps the whole duration of his ministry. We talk about him being sold by his brothers, plotted to die even by his brothers. If you remember, when Joseph did find his flocks, when Joseph did find his brothers, what was the first thing that they said? And they were like, look, here comes this dreamer of dreams. Let's kill him. Let's throw him in a pit. Those, the ones that should be his brothers, the ones who were his brethren, they plotted against him. Well, that's exactly what happened to the Messiah. And we have the, the reference here in John chapter 11 at verse 53 that is all about basically the, the, the religious authority in Jerusalem plotting to kill Yeshua or Jesus when, when they find Him, when they see Him, that they had heard about all of these things and these miracles that had happened. And there's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, that's running around, that's performing all of these miracles. And it specifically says, talking about Caiaphas, the high priest, and talking to that, that in uh, verse 53 of John chapter 11, it says this, that from that day on, they plotted to put Him to death. Therefore, Yeshua no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with His disciples. And then it now goes into the story in the Gospel of John about how the Passover came and how He then returned back to Jerusalem and made Himself then known, and He then went to the temple and started teaching in all the different things in, in, in Jerusalem in the uh, Passion Week and all of the week leading up to his crucifixion, and to his sacrifice. But there, nevertheless, his brethren plotted against him, that they, that they wanted to kill him. And I guarantee you, the brothers of Joseph, all the things that had happened to them from the bad report to their father loving Joseph more than any of the other brothers, they absolutely did despise him. So they looked to him and they say, here comes this dreamer of dreams, let's kill him. Well, then also throw him into a pit. Now, I'm getting maybe a little ahead of myself in the parallels to Yeshua, but Yeshua himself also was cast into a pit. If you look at the tomb that he was put into after he dies and he goes into the tomb, goes into the heart of the earth, and you can do, draw a parallel as well about Joseph being thrown into the pit. And then, of course, he was sold. 
he was sold by his brothers. Now, along came some, some traders, some, some sons of, um, of Ishmael that come, and there were a caravan that was going to Egypt. And so what happens is that in the story, the brothers, I think it was it said that, that Judah looked at him and he says, nah, let's not kill him, but let's sell him. Let's get some money here in the case of it. And they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. There's, of course, another parallel, of course, Judas, the disciple of the Messiah, sold out his master for silver, 30 pieces of silver in that case, 20 pieces of silver. Needless to say, he was sold out by his brethren, sold by his brethren, and then goes to Egypt. Now, again, the parallels might be jumping around to either the early life of Yeshua or the later life of Yeshua, but we also have the story of Yeshua going to Egypt as well in Matthew chapter 2 at verse 14, where it talks, starting in verse 14, where it starts talking about how it was King Herod that was plotting against to kill the children of Judea that then for his life to be preserved, he had to go to Egypt. So once again, we have another parallel with Joseph and the fact that Joseph, he was about to be put to death, but for his life to be spared, he instead went to Egypt. So there's a note, once again, and this follows the pattern of all the patriarchs, of course, where it was Abraham that also went to Egypt as well. Jacob will also go to Egypt, and so that there's this pattern of going to Egypt for then life to be preserved for one reason or another. In the case of Abraham, it was because of a famine. In the case of Joseph, it was his brothers that were plotting against him, so he had to go to Egypt. In the case of the Messiah, it was the king that was plotting to kill all the, all the children of Judea, and he had to go to Egypt to have his life preserved. Now, as when he went to Egypt... As a slave, he became a servant. He became a servant. This is a man who once had royal robes and once was exalted amongst all, uh, above all of his brothers, loved by his father. You had this guy named Jacob who was a descendant of Abraham. These were, he, he was a famous man as far as you could tell from, you know, in the ancient world that these were men that were known. And so there's, you have Joseph, you have a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, this man. And so when he goes to Egypt, obviously sold by his brothers, he was then stripped of all of his garments and his belongings. By the way, that's another parallel to Yeshua as well, in the sense that his garment when he was crucified was stripped off of him and divided, and that it was obviously covered in blood when that was the case. Well, <laughs> that ties back to the story that the brothers told Jacob when they had sold Joseph. Remember, they took the coat, they dipped it in blood, and they gave, brought it to his, their father, and they said, do you recognize this? And then that's when he knew or believed that his son, his beloved son Joseph, had been killed by a wild beast or something. But needless to say, the garments were removed from him. The garments of honor were removed from him in the same way that Yeshua, when his garments were torn off of him, he was shamed. All honor was stripped from him, and his garments were divided as well. <coughs> Excuse me. So he comes to Egypt, Joseph does, and he becomes a servant in the house of a master. Now he actually, he's given, he's shown favor by his master in all cases. Joseph was always shown favor. He comes to, to the, to the uh, house of his master and he's made the chief of all the slaves. He's, made, made a, uh, he's turned into a house slave and he actually has some esteem for a slave, if I could say that. And then later he's going to go to prison and then he's going to be esteemed above all other prisoners and to actually be an assistant to the, to the jailer. To the, and so in all cases, he always still had this esteem that was given to him and granted to him by whatever master he found or, or was under. Yeshua, when he came to this earth, 
He was a servant. He presented himself as a servant. He washed the feet of his disciples. They called him master, and he went down, knelt to the dust of the earth, and washed their feet, which was the most humble thing someone could do, especially when you look into the historical context of what washing one's feet what it entitled, what it meant, what it was when you, when you came in contact with somebody else's feet, when you saw the bottom of somebody else's feet. It was a, in ancient times and still in Middle Eastern cultures, that was a, that's a sign of, of, of servitude that you don't ever, the person who they show their feet to you, they rule over you, they have dominion over you. And so the Messiah bending down to wash the feet of his disciples shows how much of a servant he was teaching his disciples to be, and that he was, even though he's the Messiah, even though he's the Son of God, even though he's proclaimed to be the King of the world, the King to reign in Jerusalem, he still presented himself as a servant. This is the humility of Joseph, as we see in the place where he finds himself in Egypt as a slave. He still showed himself to be humbly, to, 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 to be humble. And that there in his master's house, of course, Then we have the whole uh, story of Potiphar's wife, Potiphar being his master, and we have the wife of the master that looks at the young young man who's who's a Hebrew, who's a slave, and she tempts him. She entices him to sin, and she tries to lay with him, and he, being a righteous man, a holy man, wanting to not do anything wrong, he refuses. He refuses the temptation to sin. This is just like the Messiah, of course, who was tempted, of course, in Matthew chapter 4, also in, in the Gospel of Luke, where the devil himself tempted the Messiah, tempted him with, with, with all power, with food, with all of these things. Yet the Messiah was without sin, and Joseph himself refused to sin. In fact, if you look at the Scripture, and you look at the story of Joseph, and read all about Joseph, you'd be hard-pressed to find any instance where the Scripture describes that Joseph ever sinned. That there's the, Sometimes we read about some people that they say, this person committed atrocities, and this person did this, and Moses killed this man here. And you sit there, and you're like, well, did, did that person sin? Well, you know, sometimes the Scripture describes it. In the case of Joseph, does it ever show in the Scripture that Joseph really, truly committed a sin? You might think maybe the bad report that he said of his brothers, but then he was honored by his father because of it. Other than that, no. The Bible presents Joseph as a righteous man, as a sinless man, perhaps even. And so then the Messiah himself, though tempted, committed no sin. Once again, and then in the story of Joseph, of course, it was Potiphar's wife that grabbed his garment, that his garment was left behind, and then the garment is what was used to accuse him to accuse him that he, had, that he had committed a sin, that he was attempting to, to lay with the master's wife, and it was then the master that, you know, thanks be to God, that didn't put him to death, instead sent him to prison. Once again, you have this other exchange of garment here when you have the garment that was taken and left, and, and, and in many cases we see in the story of Joseph about his, his, something to do with his garments. We'll know, of course, in next week's portion about he's then going to be adorned once again with royal garments, because he will be exalted all the way to the level of Pharaoh. But again, we have this story again with his garments being left behind. You might be able to draw a parallel if you're thinking about the shroud, the garment, the linen cloth that was left when the Messiah was raised. That's that is what was left behind. And again, you can draw many other parallels and stories 
connect him in the Messiah to Joseph. We always say here at this ministry, we say, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And some of the parallels and the stories of what we have recorded of what happened to Yeshua, there are parallels and patterns that connect back to our patriarchs in the Old Testament. So he was tempted, but without sin, but he was falsely accused because he didn't sin. He didn't, Joseph did not sin, but even though he was sent to prison. So now let's go later in the book of Matthew, where it's talking about how when, when uh, Yeshua was put on trial, and Yeshua himself, he too was falsely accused. If you go to Matthew chapter 26, at verse uh, starting, let's say, verse 59, when it says, the, when Yeshua was before the Sanhedrin, and he was uh, led away to Caiaphas, the high priest, and he appears before all of them. It says here in verse 59 of uh, Matthew 26, it says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false testimony against Yeshua to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, and he said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it up in three days. And then it says, and, and Yeshua then has the return back to him, and he says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Did you, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Yeshua kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the, by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Yeshua said to them, It is as you have said. Nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, this is when Yeshua was falsely accused. Falsely accused. He kept silent initially. Now, when he only responded when they directly asked if he was the Son of God. So then in the back to our story with Joseph, when he was falsely accused, what happened to him? And now, I believe it does say that he sort of pled his case, but eventually he still submitted to what the punishment was. He obviously didn't fight back, and he was sent to prison, and he was, but him being righteous and being a humble man accepted the punishment. We have the story that follows him as he goes into the, into the prison, and he's sitting there, and I, you can put yourself in the life of Joseph and wonder what in the world is, is going on here. What sin has Joseph committed that is causing all of this burden to come upon him? Well, we know that God has a plan for Joseph's life. The plan is, is that through him, he's going to save the entire known world. Because what's coming is there'll be a famine coming, and that through him, through his wisdom, and through God's providence, protecting him, watching over him, Joseph will be the one who will be the vehicle by which all the world will be saved because of the punishment. This is the same thing with Yeshua. When Yeshua is crying out to the Lord, why have thou forsaken me? And all the things and, 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 and all, all the punishment that Yeshua received, why did that have to happen? It's so that we might have a Savior, so that we might have a hope and a sacrifice for our sins, for our willful, defiant sins, and that is why the Messiah suffered. That's why Joseph suffered, is so that there would be a Savior and so that there would be a world that would not crumble to a worldwide famine coming later on in the story. Now, one of the most fascinating parallels, one of the most fascinating ones that, that I love when I read and look at the story of Joseph, though, is when he's in prison and he finds, him, he finds two friends that he, that he has there in prison that he ends up talking to, that he ends up uh, uh, befriending, basically. And so then as he's there in, uh, uh, in prison, he interprets dreams. 
And you remember he's, a, he's J Joseph and he had, he had his dreams and he sort of interpreted those dreams. Now he interpreted his own dreams and then spoke of them. And then when he spoke them to certain people, they didn't like hearing what the interpretation of the dreams were. So as time goes on, Joseph clearly learns, he clearly learns that he is, um, he matures, if you will, while in prison to understand, wait, you know what? The interpretation of the dream, that belongs to God. In fact, Joseph says to, to the ones that he, are having these dreams, he says, do not interpretations belong to God. There's a humility in him that shows that it's like, look, you know, I might be able to interpret the dream through the wisdom of God, but it's his. It belongs to him. He doesn't take the authority of being the one that can interpret dreams. He gives all the authority to God. This also parallels, of course, the infinite humility of Yeshua when he says all power and authority was given to him by his Father who sent him. And there's a humility there, and that it's all through the power of God that all of these things happen. Now, I mean, he does say, yes, I am the Son of God, but, it, it, but it, the humility of when they kept asking him directly, are you, the, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Yeshua always spoke in parables. He always taught, and he showed his humility. Once again, as a servant to not just immediately proclaim that he had all this power and he had all this authority. Joseph did the same while in prison. So he finds himself facing his sentence in prison with two other criminals right there next to him. We have the, the baker and the cupbearer of Pharaoh. We don't know exactly how these men were, were thrown into prison, that we know that they were, they were cast into prison by the things that they did and they were confined there. And Joseph once again befriends them, and they have these dreams. And one of them has a dream in which that the interpretation of the dream is that he is going to be uh, lifted up out of this pit, and he's going to be restored. He's going to be exonerated. He's going to be, he's going to be brought out of the prison, and he's going to become a free man again. While the other one was spoken of, and that it says that he was going to face eternal judgment, that he was then going to die. It was going to come and pass on three, after three days, that then he was going to die and he was going to hang on a tree. So these, we have these two other prisoners standing there with this Messiah-like figure known as Joseph. One of them is one that is going to be brought to death, that is going to have eternal judgment and punishment come upon him, and another one is going to be set free. I think this is one of the most beautiful parallels in all of the Scripture. When we think and we wonder, what is the deal with the two criminals that are on the cross with the Messiah? Because So if we go to Luke chapter 23, and we have talking about how when He is put upon the cross, and it says specifically in verse 32, that there were two other criminals that were led with Him and put to death. And when they came to the place, they were, he, they were crucified. And one of the criminals was put upon and crucified on his right hand and the other on his left. If you jump ahead to verse 39, it says this, One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, him and said, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. You know, if all, you know he was in a mocking tone, basically. If you have all this power and all this authority, then, then, then you're the Son of God. Save yourself. Oh, by the way, save us too. We're all kind of in this together, right? But the other was righteous. The other criminal, though he was a criminal and accused, yes, he rebuked the other one, the one who mocked, and he said this, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Look, when somebody is at the end of their life, at the end of their rope, 
You sit there and it's all like, there's no secrets there anymore. There's the things that you're going to take to your grave and it's all like, at that point, you, if you're not going to show humility in that moment in time to where you're not going to be crying out to God that you might be saved from eternal damnation, in the moment of your execution, it's like... Well, that, that, that goes to show the evil spirit that was in one criminal and the one of, of humility and understanding in the other. And one criminal rebuked the other. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. One criminal is telling the other, it's like, look, we committed sin. We absolutely are being punished for crimes we committed. I don't know if he knew that the one he was standing, he was right next to, the Messiah, that he was actually falsely accused and didn't commit crimes. He obviously didn't know, but so he, he didn't speak to that. But he knew the sins he had committed, and he's like, this is our judgment. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is what he said in the Messiah. That's what he, he, so he was aware of being falsely accused, that Yeshua had done nothing wrong. And he said to Yeshua, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Yeshua said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And he says, and he, and he, he does, and he, he remembers him. Well, then go back to Joseph. Remember the story of what happened to the, uh, to, to the baker that was uh, set free? Joseph says to him, remember me. It's kind of, the, the roles are reversed a little bit. The, one, the criminal to Yeshua said, remember me in your kingdom. And he says, I'll you'll be there. And said, it's turned around when Joseph, after interpreting the dreams, he says, no, remember me. Remember me, that I was the one that interpreted the dream. And that, now we know for several years after that, that uh, that the baker did not remember Joseph. It was only later in time, and this was going into the beginning of, our, of next week's Torah portion as well, when there's a dream that needs to be interpreted, a dream of Pharaoh. And that's when he does remember him, and that's when the remembrance comes and Joseph is brought up out of that prison and that, so that he could interpret the dream of Pharaoh, and he was remembered. This is, just the, this is just the first part of Joseph's life. This is just the first, well, he's a young man. He doesn't appear before Pharaoh until he's 30 years old. So we're talking about here this, the first 30 years of Joseph's life here and the things that he experienced. Yet we already have that many profound parallels to the life of Yeshua. All the way, so much so that the parallels of the way they suffered punishment and that they were, um, that they were in prison and how they were falsely accused and that they were um, carrying out their sentence is the same way that the Messiah carried out his sentence, and as he was killed and crucified, and then he was put into a tomb. So if that's the case, if we're just looking at the chronology of that, well, then we got a whole lot more life of Joseph. So what would the rest of Joseph's life, if it truly does parallel the life of Yeshua, then what part does that parallel? Well, that, of course, parallels the life of Yeshua after the resurrection, after he has been raised. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, talking about how the story of Yeshua has gone into the world. And by, through that testimony of Yeshua and the believers and, and, and the disciples and the understanding and the knowledge and understanding of the Messiah, the Son of God, who is our Savior, that if you believe in Him, you will have eternal life, that testimony has gone into the world and that many people have been saved because of it. And then we will get to look at the life of Joseph being raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh, the king of the known world at the time, the physical world of Egypt being the world power at the time, and being risen up to there to where then through him and his actions, all the world might be saved. This is the testimony of what Yeshua is doing in the world today. 
that through his testimony, through the, li- to, through the life of many people, from, from church fathers to, to people who have worked in ministry for the last 2,000 years, have worked to bring that testimony to the people so that they might be saved, so that they might be fed as if they were hungry. And that exactly is what Joseph will do with the rest of his life. So the parallel of the life of Joseph going to the life of Yeshua, yes, parallels what comes straight out of the New Testament. What obviously parallels the rest of his life as an older man and as he then is revealed to his brothers, obviously speaks more in the prophetic nature to what Yeshua is doing today on this earth and what he will do when he reveals himself at the end of the age. Fascinating parallels in the life of Yeshua and what the testimony of Yeshua was as recorded in the New Testament and how we can teach and understand the principles and the stories of old that we have in the Torah cycle. We can teach those same principles from the New Testament as well. So let us go before the Lord and pray, and I pray everyone has a wonderful rest of their Shabbat and their weekend. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your instruction, your teaching, Father. We thank you for the life of Joseph and for the life of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, your Son, Father. We love you, bless you, and thank you. Father, you have taught us so many things, Lord, with the parallels in the Scriptures. And Father, may we no longer separate your Word. May we no longer divide your Word. For anyone that stands up and speaks to one particular Scripture being more important than another, Father, or how that we've been taught that some Scriptures are done away with, Father, I pray that we would just rebuke those, uh, those teachings and instructions, Father. Father, that we understand that you are the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And that, Father, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then you also are the God of Yeshua, the Messiah. May we not separate these things, and may we understand all the teachings and instructions and all the profound things that you are doing in this world, Father, not only through the stories and prophecies of old, but, Father, even in our testimonies that we live day in and day out. So as we speak of your word and your instructions, as we speak of the redemption of your Son, our Savior, Lord, Father, may we be encouraged and strengthened in our faith as we study your word each and every week. And Father, as we are fed daily by your word, it is like daily bread, Father, that nourishes us day in and day out. We love you, we bless you, and thank you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.